3 and verse 6. This will be the final of uh, 11 series it turned out to be in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, I think in light of uh, what we've already studied in this book, we're, we're kind of surprised at the ending. I think it is somewhat of a, um, not an ending that, that I certainly would have predicted. And I trust yet God will teach us and work through his word. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 6. Hear now the word of God. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. He may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word, which we now can come and turn our attention to and our hearts to, our minds to. We do pray that by your grace and according to the work of your spirit that you would impact us through your word. In fact, we pray, as many of us have been praying since last week, that the word, your word, would run ahead. Even today, it would run ahead into our lives and be glorified and honored, that it would receive the triumphant welcome that it is due in our lives as we hear it now, whether we're gathered here in this room or watching on our live stream, and that it would continue to run ahead, even in the conversations we have this afternoon, that we would speak the truths that your word have taught us and that word will be received and honored as it should through this sermon, through all of our ministries, and through all the members of Hamilton Baptist Church. Do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the early 1840s that a man named William Miller began to preach the imminent end of the world. In fact, just like they all do, he came up with a date. His date, March 21st, 1844. He would use newsletters and posters in order to spread his message in the mid-1840s to thousands, tens of thousands of people. And many believed what he was teaching. They expected Jesus to appear at any moment. And so the Millerites, as they were called, sold their belongings and took to the mountains to wait. 
Well, I don't have to tell you, Jesus did not appear on March 21st, 1844. And so Miller did what they all do. He recalculated. Right? Okay, my bad. Right, let me come up with a better date. And in the process, he remodeled his theology, giving rise to what we know today as the Seventh-day Adventist. Miller, I think, made two mistakes. One is obvious, isn't it? All right, predicting the date of Jesus' return. He was wrong, certainly, about his timing. But the second mistake is the response to their belief in the imminent return of Christ. Right? I, I wonder, and we, we, of course, this is not an unfamiliar story. We hear stories like this over and over and over again. And it seems almost every time when someone thinks Jesus is returning at a particular time, they sell their belongings, quit their jobs, and head to the mountains to wait. This is over and over and over again. And so the question I have is, if you think Jesus is returning, why do you sell your house? Why do you sell your stuff? What are you going to do with the money? I, don't, I have a, no idea. Why, why, why is idleness the response to a belief in Christ's imminent return? Christ is coming, therefore let's stop being productive. Seems to be the response over and over and over again throughout church history. Well, there was a, a similar event that happened this time on May 19th, 1780, you'll excuse me for re reusing this illustration. It is one of my favorite stories from this time. There was a, at that, on that day, May 19th, 1780, there was an unusual darkening over the skies in New England. The cause of this event was uh, believed to be a combination of smoke from forest fires, a thick fog, and a cloud cover. The darkness on that day was so complete that candles were required at noon. It did not dispense until about uh, the evening of the next day. Now, I just want, want you to imagine for a moment. You're living in New England, 1780. It's May, and you're going about your day. It's the middle of the day, and, and there are no forest fires near you. These, this is coming in from Canada from hundreds of miles away. And at noon, the sun turns blood red. And the, and the, the sky turns black. And you can't pull out your iPhone and figure out, hey, what in the world's going on? Okay. And, and, of course, many believe this to be the end of the world. It just so happened that the Connecticut legislature, legislature was in session at that time. And the members, I'm sure like many people, were filled with awe and terror uh, uh, when this happened. They, they, they're supposing this to be the final day, the last day, the day of Christ's return. The Connecticut legislature moved for adjournment. Before they could take a vote on adjournment, the, an old legislator by the name of Mr. Davenport, an old Puritan, he arose and spoke from the floor. He, the history records his speech. He said, this well may be the day of judgment, which the world awaits. But be it so or not, I know only my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy till he come. So at the post where he hath set me in his providence, I choose for one to meet him face to face. Not a faithless servant frightened from my task, but ready when the Lord of the harvest calls. Therefore, with all reverence, I say, let God do his work and we will do ours. Bring in the candles. And they did. They went back to work. So quite an opposite reaction. We might compare and contrast the two of the Millerites and we might say the, the Davenports. Well, let me give you one more if you don't mind. This, this takes place in 50 AD in a town called Thessalonica. There is 
as we've already seen in our study of this letter, a false report that the day of the Lord has either come or the day of the Lord was soon to be upon them. And so some of the Christians in the church of Thessalonica, like the Millerites and not like the Davenports, stopped working because they thought the end was near. As you know, in verse 11, uh, excuse me, yes, so verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And so Paul exhorts them, gives them a Davenport-like exhortation to keep working, as you see in verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Even if the day of the Lord's upon us, let's get back to work. Now I find this to be a, a very, as I've already mentioned, an interesting way in which 2 Thessalonians is concluding. Because if you, you think about the, our time in studying this passage, we have uh, really encouraged some, uh, encountered some glorious and majestic uh, realities. We've talked about the return of Christ, of course, and the day of judgment and the glorification of his saints. We talked about the, the, the man of lawlessness and the power of the devil and the great rebellion that is to come. We've considered God's election from, from eternity past, and we've considered these, these glorious truths. And now Paul ends his letter turning to something incredibly mundane, work. What are you going to do tomorrow around 9 a.m. for most of us? And so he wants us to, to think about how God's truth impacts what we spend the majority of our adult life doing. And you might wonder, does God have anything to say about work? Or is work kind of separate? You know, I got God over here and I got my, my job over here. Well, yeah, God has something to say about how you work. In fact, I would suggest your faith is, is not worth much if it doesn't impact the way that we live outside when we, uh, this place in which we gather. How we live out there, I think, has a great deal to say about uh, what we believe in here. And so we're going to consider the theology of work this morning by looking at the two, two groups of people that seem to be in this church. We have the idol, the Millerites, if you might, and we have uh, the productive, the Davenports. And uh, so we begin with considering the, the idol he identifies them by their lack of labor, as you see in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. Right? So there's these individuals who are walking in idleness. You'll see that phrase uh, repeated twice more in this passage. Now, of course, Paul doesn't name them in order to identify them, but I think he probably leaves very little doubt as to who they are. You could uh, uh, be confident that when the Thessalonians received this letter, they would have gathered together. There would have been a public reading of this letter. And I imagine it might have been awkward when they got to this point in the letter. Because certain people are being identified, right? And, and uh, can you imagine if it's you? You're the guy who's not working. You're the guy who's mooching off everybody else. And Paul begins to address you. I think that would be pretty awkward. I mean, you were staring at the floor. Everybody else giving you the stink eye, right? And, uh, you know, yeah, I'm glad Paul is addressing this issue. In fact, he goes on to explain the trouble that these people are causing, as you know, in verse 10. For even when we are with you, we will give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You see, evidently their sloth is becoming a burden to others. They're, be, they're being fed by the church. And so the, the church, is, of course, people in the church are working to provide for themselves. But now they're evidently providing for those who choose not to work. The, the, the idol. And the idol are pretty hungry people. Uh, the book of Proverbs says in chapter 13 and verse 4, 
A sluggard's appetite is never filled. And so these individuals are not working, and you think, okay, so they're being a burden to the church, but that's not the only trouble which they're causing. They got nothing to do, and if you got nothing to do, then what, do you, what no business of your own, what do you do? Well, you get involved in other people's business, don't you? So you see in verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, right? Just going around talking about every, other people's affairs. You know, I, I heard Lenny slept on the couch again last night. I don't know what's going on in that home, right? I, I heard the pastor's kid got the wrong answer in Sunday school class again. I don't know what he's teaching them. Right? And they begin to you know, get involved in, in other people's affairs. Right? You, you shouldn't use that much salt. Don't you know that's not bad, good for you? I mean, just have no, no other interest other than poking their nose in other people's business. If you, if, as you know, if you work hard, you usually don't have time for that nonsense. The idle, of course, have too much time. They're using that time to disrupt the church. So they're burdening the church and disrupting them as well. And so Paul then says, okay, what, what then should we do with them? What is the solution with the idol? Well, interesting enough, he gives us a threefold solution. What do we do with those who do not work? Well, first of all, as you see in verse 10, we don't support them. We don't support them. Again, we've already seen this verse, but let's uh, consider it one last time. For even when we are with you, we will give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, the church is not called to continually take care of people who can take care of themselves, right? And I'm, I'm hesitant to add, but I'll do so anyways. Neither should the government. I, I believe that's what this scripture is teaching us. I think, this is a, I think poverty is a complicated issue. I think there are injustices in our land and in other lands that need to be resolved, I think there are many reasons to care for the poor. We see in Scripture, God, when, when he refers to the poor, institutes gleaning laws. He institutes the year of jubilee in order to provide for those who are in poverty. I think that shows God's heart for the poor. But the idea that people have a right to the income that others have earned seems to be rejected here in verse 10. I mention that because we live in a day in which there is a growing political sentiment that people have the right, and we use that, that, that language in our land, the right uh, to entitlements, right? Well, you know what entitlement is? I'm entitled to certain things as an American. And today it seems very popular to say I'm entitled to, for instance, free health care, or I'm entitled to free college education. And on and on. And there's more and more demands for entitlements in our land. I want to be clear, and I simply want to speak, I hope, biblically, that what Paul is doing is he's rejecting such an idea. Because in order for us to give out entitlements, we must therefore confiscate, confiscate the wealth from working people. Right? It seems to me the Bible is rejecting the idea that we have a right to the fruitful labor of others. That I have that right. You, you have to feed me. And this is what Paul is rejecting. I think the government has a role in caring for people. But able-bodied people should not be dependent on anyone. Church or the government. Now just to be clear, what, I think the people in which Paul is addressing, and every, every commentator agrees, this is not a reference to those who are looking for work and can't find it. Right? As many, I think many are in this day in this economic times of trouble. These are people who are able to work, they're able to find work, but choose not to work. That's a very different situation, isn't it? 
And so we as a church, as many of you know, perhaps, that we have a benevolence fund. And that we use that benevolence fund in order to help members of this church who are in financial struggles. Not because they're idle, not because they're slothful, but because they have fallen on economic hardship. And, and for those people who find themselves in that situation, and who knows how long this COVID crisis is going to last and the economic disruption that it's bringing. For those who are in that situation, I want to be abundantly clear, even as I speak on these, these truths, it is, I believe, a Christ-honoring, gospel-displaying privilege to help those people financially. I also thank God for the generosity of this church, many of you giving to our Benevolence Fund, so that we can help those people who are facing those challenges. Now, I've been thankful, even in the midst of this economic downturn, that we have not been forced to draw upon that Benevolence Fund um, to a great extent. Though we have, as your elders, uh, have, have, have helped members of this church. And we're able to do so because you generously give so that we can help those in times of financial need. So I thank God for that. I think that's a wonderful gospel-displaying opportunity to provide and to help people at that time. I, I think we as Hamilton Baptist Church believe it to be a joy to, be, to use part of our offerings and our tithes that are actually going to the needs of our brothers and sisters that belong to this faith community. And so, but yet for those who choose not to work, Paul says, hey, don't support them. Number one, solution, don't support them. Number two, admonish them. As you see in verse 12. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good, right? So Paul says, listen, we're commanding you. It's not a suggestion. In fact, he even adds, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see there, as he did in verse 6, we're commanding you to get to work. This is the very real authority of Jesus. Paul is an apostle of Christ by the will of God, and he will use that authority to address this problem. He's not messing around. Start working, he says. And yet at the same time, he softens it a little bit. He says, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and encourage you. I'm just trying to encourage you. Let's get to work. And so I think the church needs to help these brothers and these sisters when they are confronted with them. I think that's what verse 13 means. There's some debate as to what he's referring to. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. What is the good in which he is referring to? I think the good is in which he's referring to based upon the context is admonishing the idol. And he says, don't grow weary in doing that good work. It is not, as you know, I think, it is not easy dealing with the disobedient. Right? We like to pretend the problem is not there. We, 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 we want to ignore discipline. Parents, you ever have that instinct? Right? You ever come home and you see one of your sons is, is hitting your other son in the head with a stick or something? Right? Right? Is this just, I don't know if this is a car in reality or this is what we all experience. And you think, you kind of pause there and you think, I should really do something about it. But then you also think, they could probably figure it out themselves, can't they? Or maybe their mother will find them and there is a temptation to sneak upstairs and pretend you never saw it to begin with. Right? Discipline is hard, isn't it? It's difficult. So Paul says, there in verse 13, don't grow weary in doing this good work. Don't grow weary and lovingly admonish those who need to be admonished. And if they don't heed the words of the church, thirdly, 
You see, he says to avoid them. Don't support them. Admonish them. And lastly, avoid them. You see that in verse 6, of course, we've already seen. That he commands you, brothers, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. He returns to that idea in verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. This is what we call church discipline. This is taught to us by Jesus in Matthew 18. We see it practiced in the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 and again in 2 Corinthians. And here he says, avoid them, have nothing to do with them. This is what the, throughout church history we have called excommunication. Excommunication. This, now I want to be clear, this is not shunning. We're not talking about shunning. We're not talking about abstaining from all interactions with such people. But we are talking about withholding intimate fellowship. We are talking about pretending that everything is okay and everything's just like it, like it was. In fact, I prefer the, the translation from the NASB in verse 14. Maybe you have that version. It says, not, the ESV says, have nothing to do with them. That's kind of harsh. Uh, the NASB says, do not associate with them. I like that, that, that translation in light of verse 15. For we see him his heart there, or the softness of it. Do not regard him as an enemy, he says, but warn him as a brother. There's a gentleness even into the discipline. The erring brother or sister is not our enemy. And therefore, when we discipline someone as a church, we do it slowly. We're not in a hurry. Right? We're not checking boxes. We're giving them time for the Holy Spirit to bring about repentance through our loving admonitions. And yet the church is seeking to make them aware of the seriousness of their continued public unrepentant sin. We're told why we do this in verse 14. Right? In order that they may be, you see it? Ashamed. Ashamed. Why do we want them to feel ashamed? Well, so they would repent. It's not, it's not a punishment. This is a, a, a discipline, a correction. They're seeking their restoration. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, says, Shame, like sorrow, is a useful preparation for the hatred of sin. And so we love our brother, not by ignoring their sin, but by lovingly disciplining them for it. As one walks down a, a road called ruin, it's only out of self-love that we watch them go and say nothing and do nothing. And so we lovingly confront them. And sadly, if we must, we avoid them, as Paul says. We do this not only to bring there about their repentance, we do this as well to guard the integrity of the church and the gospel. Tolerated public sin, as we read in 1 Corinthians 5, for instance, is the eraser that deletes any distinction that God's people have from the world. It dilutes the gospel, it spoils the glory of God, and therefore for the sake of God's name, for the good of our witness, and for the love of our brother and sister in sin, we practice church discipline. I want to be clear, we as Hamilton Baptist Church, I know this is very out of date, and, and that's okay by me. We practice as a church, church discipline. This is why we take membership so important. This is why we express this when you go through our membership classes. About 20 of you did uh, a couple weeks ago. That, that when you join with us, you are covenanting with us. Part of that covenant is you are saying, please hold me accountable to the profession of my faith that I might follow Christ. I'm inviting you into my life that you might help me to follow Jesus even as I help you to follow Jesus. And so Paul, of course, teaches this, as does the rest of Scripture. Of course, he hopes 
uh, in this case, this case of church discipline, that these idle will become productive. And so we turn to the second class of people that Paul is addressing, and I, I'm sure uh, the class that will help you the most, the productive the productive. I think the command in verse 12 is not just for the idle, but it's for all Christians. Now, such a person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You see, wherever the Lord has us, wherever the Lord puts us, whether we're in the field or the shop or the office or the home or the classroom, we are to give ourselves to that work. We are to do so quietly, Paul says. This is just the simple life, unflashy life the mundane life of Christian productivity, just as Paul has shown us. Because Paul simply didn't command their labor, he modeled it, as you see in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day. You notice Paul says, I wasn't idle when I was with you. I worked all the time. I, I, I toiled and I labored night and day. And I think what a labor that must have been. I can't imagine working all day and then in the evening gathering with people and trying to preach with passion and conviction and clarity. And yet Paul did. He was willing to endure this labor. And he tells us why. He did so for two reasons, doesn't he? One, so that he would not be a burden to them. He wouldn't tax them, as you read on in verse 8, that we might not be a burden to any of you. And secondly, he did so in order to give them an example. For well, we read in verse 9, it was not because we don't have that right, right, the right to earn a living from preaching, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So evidently Paul sees something in this church of Thessalonica, by the way he addressed this issue in 1 Thessalonians as well, that he concludes it's better for the gospel to forego his, forego his right to earn his living from preaching uh, in order to give them a model to follow. And this, I think, is a, is a great help in the preaching ministry. The effectiveness, I believe, of, of, the, of a preacher or of a, of a sermon should, in part at least, depend upon the character of the one giving the message. I think that's what Paul's teaching us here. I don't know who said it, but I think it's helpful to a degree when one asked, is preaching the art of making a sermon and delivering it? The answer, why no, that's not preaching. Preaching is the art of making a preacher and delivering that. Now, I don't think that's entirely true. I think there must be a sermon. It has to be delivered. But there is some truth. And I think that it's a well-meaning idea that, that we want someone who has, is teaching us to have a character that backs them up. This is one of the many reasons why in our day I think we should be very aware of, be, be aware of studying under people we don't know. Right? We should beware of the YouTube preacher. Even as I know, I'm on YouTube this very moment. Right? And some of you I don't know. Right? We should beware of reading books from authors that have no accountability to a local church. In fact, wherever I preach, when I have the opportunity to guest preach anywhere, as I will on Wednesday, I begin whatever, if every sermon always begins this way, regardless of what I'm preaching, always begins this way. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Hamilton Baptist Church, where I have been approved and called to preach the gospel. And what I am trying to communicate to them by doing so is that I am not a free agent preacher. 
I'm just not running around here with no accountability, no one verifying who I am. There is a local church which has approved me, has called me, and I come and I preach through that authority. In fact, you will find no free agent Christians in the Bible. Paul's running around planting churches, but he, is, he didn't just decide that one day. You know what I think I'll do? I think I'll become a missionary. That is not how it works. He is called through the church of Antioch. He is a member, probably a pastor at the church of Antioch, and it is through that church that he is set aside and sent out to be a missionary. And I think we see this model, and so I think it's very helpful, the accountability that the local church gives to those who take up the mantle of preaching and teaching God's word. And so regardless, of course, of the work you do, most of you don't preach for a living. But what you do, of course, should, I think, reflect a Christian character, right? This is what Paul is teaching us. I'm giving you an example of my labor. I want you to see how to work, right? And therefore, I tell you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever God has you, don't do the minimum, right? Don't just do the basic minimum in order to avoid being fired. Seek to excel. Seek to be joyful. Seek to be responsible and productive. Teenagers, college students, Listen, God's plan for you is not to play video games or hang out with your friends all your hours. He intends for you to work at wherever he's called you, namely your studies, and then occasionally enjoy leisure, as God has taught us. Seniors, God's plan is not for you to whittle away your final two decades in unproductive idleness. Right? And you may be fortunate enough, as many in this land are, to retire from your career. But you are not to retire from productive labor as God gives you the opportunities. Martin Luther was once asked by a new Christian how he could best now please his Savior. Luther asked him, what do you do? What's your work? The man says, I'm a shoemaker. To his surprise, Luther replied, then make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. Reminds me of the counsel that John the Baptist gave. As we read in scripture, the tax collectors came to him to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Right, so these individuals come to John, so what should we do now that we have repented and put our faith in God? He says, Keep doing the work in which God has placed you in. Just do it with honesty out of a desire to help other people. I think Paul is giving us similar counsel here in verse 12. Now, such person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Why do we work? To earn our own living, to provide for ourselves and those who are under our care. It is, I think, a delight, a Christian delight in particular, to give to our family and occasionally to our friends in order to meet their needs. Parents, I would encourage you to teach your children to be productive in the work in which God has given them. When you teach your children to be productive, you not only love your children, you love their future spouses who will want a spouse who has a work ethic. When you don't allow idleness to, to, in your children to abound, you are loving your future grandchildren who will be blessed by the work ethic that you have bestowed into their parents. 
God has made us to work. Work is his gift to us, even as Butch has already shown us. Work is good. And so I lovingly encourage you, if you have a bumper sticker on the back of your car that goes something like this, I owe, I owe, it's off the work I go, you might want to remove it. Because it seems what you're communicating is that your work is simply an occasion that allows you to buy yourself new toys and put yourself further and further into debt. Now, I trust none of you have that bumper sticker, but perhaps you have the one that says, I'd rather be fishing, okay? or I'd rather be um, shopping, okay? or I'd rather be unicycling, or whatever it is. Okay? I think what you're communicating is like, I'd rather be doing anything but work. If that is your mentality, I tell you, based upon God's word, that is a rejection of God's plan for you. God's plan for you is to be productive in labor. It is an old plan from the very beginning, as we've already seen in Genesis 2.15. In fact, let me ask you a question I asked my children last night. What came first, Adam or Eden? What did God make first, the Garden of Eden or Adam? You, if you read very carefully, you will find in Genesis 2 that man was created before the garden. Adam was made, and then God made the garden so that he might have something to do. He gave him work. He gave him a job. And that job was, of course, before the fall. We don't work because of sin. We will work, I believe, Scripture teaches us, forever in a place that God calls a new heaven and a new earth. And it shall be good and glorious and productive, just as it was prior to the fall. Adam, in fact, we, if you read carefully, was to work even then for his food. And it just wasn't delivered by, you know, an angel or something like that. He had to go to work in order to eat prior to the fall. Right? We, we don't work because of sin. This is God's created order for us. Now, work, because of the fall, is cursed. Right? Amen? Okay. It's hard. It's difficult, right? It, we now make our living by the sweat of our brow, yeah? sometimes by the annoyance of a boss. Okay? This is how life now is. We read in Genesis 3, after the fall, cursed is the ground because of you. P in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Now, in other words, what God is saying, work is not going to always go the way in which we want it to go. It's not going to be easy for us. It's going to fight back against us. Work will be hard and toilsome because of sin. Right? That's new, but notice what hasn't changed. You still work in order to eat. You did that before the fall. You do it after the fall. We work in order to provide for ourselves, Scripture says. You work in order to receive your bread. So, yes, work is sweaty and difficult. And it is the means by which we provide, as you see very clearly there in verse 12. So we work to provide, but even beyond that, we might say secondly, that we work to proclaim. To proclaim. It probably will come as no surprise to you that this world is in ruins. Just turn on the news. It is evident everywhere. Or perhaps even look into your own heart. You'll see something similar. I don't know if you, you ever, many of you have toured ruins. Some of you, in fact, on the Guatemala, you've gone through the ruins of the old monastery there, and you, you could catch a glimpse of, of what it once was like. And it must have been glorious and beautiful. And now, 
Not so much. There's kind of a shadow of it. Shadow of the majesty. And now half the walls have fallen down. And the roof is gone. I kind of feel that's what the world is like. We can look around and catch the glimpse of what it once must have been like. But it's very clear it's not operating the way that it should. The way in which God has designed it to be. Which is why Jesus came. And remember when he showed up, what did he begin to preach? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he's restoring creation little by little by little. And now he gives that task to the church. The church is to live in such a way that we demonstrate to the world what life is supposed to be like and how we treat our wives and our husbands and our children and live in community and, and help one another. And how this is, this is we're, we're to be a demonstration of God's renewing uh, effort in this world. And well, you see, the world, therefore, is going to judge the truthfulness of our message by the lives of those who claim to believe it. And idleness is going to live contrary to that message. Right? I, one pastor, I don't, I don't know, don't remember who it was. He said the gospel is like a, a beautiful woman. And, and our, our work, our lives, are like a necklace around her neck. We're not the woman. We're not the gospel. We, we don't, only the gospel can save people. But our lives can be used to attract people to the gospel or repel people from the gospel. And so when we give every effort and work, when we do what's asked from, for us, from us with a good attitude, we make the gospel attractive. If we're always belly aching, we're always failing to do what we've asked, we're coming in late, we're taking two-hour lunches, we are defaming the gospel. And so I believe the best employees should be those who follow Christ. They should be the ones who show up on time, work hard, don't talk back, tell the truth, and tell people about the one who has transformed them. I think many Christians are willing to do great and wonderful things for God, but I wonder, are we willing to do the mundane things for God? This is how, one of the ways in which we reflect the glory of God. Did not Jesus say, my father is always working? My father's always working. And therefore, work for us is not a punishment, as one put it, but a gift from our creator by the means of which we bear his image. We proclaim who he is. How wonderful, therefore, is it when you file paperwork, or write code, or present a report, or sell a service, right? And demonstrate the creativity and the productivity and the excellence that reflects the very image of God. How wonderful, I ask you, is it when you work hard to create wealth, to put food on the table, and a roof over your head, and heat in the cold months, and clothing on your children, and health care for your loved ones, for that reflects the very image of God. How wonderful when you create a business, and you employ other people, who in turn can bless the world, and provide for their loved ones, for that reflects the very image of God. How wonderful is it when you at home are able to take ingredients, and some, through some a magical process that is beyond my understanding, Right? Make something that is nutritious and beautiful and aromatic that brings loved ones together for a time of fellowship and nourishment and as this wonderful, glorious opportunity to bring joy to our senses. Don't you understand? That reflects the very image of God. How wonderful is it when you study hard to fill your mind with math and English and history and science and coding and theology in order 
that you might one day contribute to the world which God has made and not be a burden to other people. After all, Jesus himself grew in wisdom, we are told. That reflects the image of God. That's a God-like act. And so we should rejoice in the opportunities in which God has given us to bear his image through the labor that he has placed before us. Of course, all of this, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is a response to the grace of God in our lives. I am not asking you, the Bible is not exhorting you to gird up your loins and go in Monday and try harder. We're, we're not trying to bear fruit by taping apples to the tree. That becomes burdensome very quickly. Instead, we see this happen when we increasingly root ourselves in what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus is doing for us and what Jesus will do for us. We root ourselves in the gospel. Even as Paul prayed, we saw this last week in verse 5. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And so as we think about work, we, I, want to, I want you to understand the motivation for that gospel work, that, that godly work, is the gospel. And so I remind you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you were once rebels from God himself. And he chased you down in Jesus Christ. And he subdued your rebellious heart and conquered your prideful mind. And he has taken, even as we have praised him today, he has taken your hundred million sins and he has cast them into the depths of the sea. And he did so because Christ died for us. That Jesus Christ left heaven, took on human flesh, went to a hill that he made, was nailed to a cross that he created by the hands of people he formed who bore his image that he might pay for the debt that you have incurred and I have incurred. And then they took his lifeless body down from that tree, the Lord of life, dead. And they put him in a tomb. They buried the Son of God. And there his lifeless body died as a testimony to the debt in which we owed. And of course he did not stay there, did he? Three days later, that life returned to that body and Jesus rose from the tomb and he left the grave and therefore, if you are in Christ, you too, one day, shall leave the grave as well. And now he loves you and guides you and provides for you and protects you and cares for you and directs you and convicts you and uses you and is taking you to a place that he called paradise. And he has done all this for you. And the more in which your heart is rooted in the work of Christ, the more in which your mind and soul is saturated by the gospel, the more your heart will cry, God, I simply want to please you. I don't want to please myself. In fact, my pleasure is found in pleasing you. And so when 9 a.m. rolls around tomorrow morning, you walk into that office or wherever you may be, and you will think, this is my day to please the one who has done so much for me. When you're rooted in the gospel, we will find power and motivation 
to live for him. I know a man who barely graduated high school. He, in fact, he, when he was in high school for about three months his junior year, he didn't even go to school. He went off to college and graduated top of his class, summa cum laude. So what's the difference? He will testify you there's only one difference. He met Jesus Christ. And he read Colossians 3 and verse 23 that says, whatever you do, do it heartily, not for man, but for the Lord. And then he would testify to you that all the work in which it was before him was an act of worship to God. God, I want to take this test for your glory. I want to write this paper for your glory. Is that not our heart's desire? I want to work for the glory of God, for him who has done so much for me. Let your work be the response to Christ. Let it be an act of worship. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. I think it's therefore fitting how Paul concludes this letter, as you see in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of my genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Verse 17 is interesting, I think, where we learn here and in other places that it was the common ancient practice that these letters were dictated, that there would be a scribe who would write them in the Greek and amanuensis. And so Paul, what we know was his common practice was the practice of that day was that he would dictate his letters to a scribe. And yet at the end of his letters, we read in a number of them, he himself would pick up the quill and write the final lines with his own hands. This would be, a, in a way, his signature. This would be a way of testifying that this is not a fake, this doesn't come from someone else, it came from my own hand. And with his own hand, what does he write? He writes of grace and peace. Even as we end this letter in the way we began. He prays for peace there in verse 16, that wonderful benediction. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace in all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I think peace is an appropriate benediction to a people we saw in chapter 1 were suffering persecution. In chapter 2 were suffering from confusion. And now find in chapter 3 are suffering from sin and division. He says, I want you to remember that the Lord, the Lord you serve is indeed the Lord of peace. May you have that peace because he is with you. Praise God that we have him. The Lord be with you, Paul says. And he is, of course. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll be with us all. You notice that? The Lord be with you all, including whom? The idol. Those he's rebuking. God doesn't even leave the disobedient because he is a God of grace. As Paul ends his letter there in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You see, the presence of Christ only brings peace if we have first received his grace. You do understand, of course, that God didn't need to save you. You did not make that an easy decision for him. In fact, you made it very easy for him to say no to salvation for you. So why would he save me? Well, because he is a God of grace. Right? And therefore, he gave us grace through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ the one who died in the place for us, paving the way for our salvation, securing it for us if we would trust in him. 
There is, of course, therefore, one place in which we should be idle. You do understand? We should be idle in trying to contribute to our own salvation. For Christ has accomplished it all. Instead, we rest fully in his productive work upon Calvary's cross and that empty tomb. In fact, your prayer might even echo Paul's prayer there in verse 18. Maybe some of you here in this room or even you who are watching on our live stream. You might even pray now in light of who Jesus is. That the grace, may your grace through the Lord Jesus Christ be with me. And it will be if you would place your faith in Jesus and trust him as your Savior and Lord. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the exhortation and the encouragement that we have today. We're thankful to be reminded of the gospel and all that it has done, all that it has continued to do, the good news of the work of our Lord. And I pray that we would be so overwhelmed by who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus that we would long for all of our life to be an act of worship to you, a response to the gospel. Everything we do will be responding to who you are, what you have done, and what you are doing and will do through us and in us and for us. Let that be true of the labor that you have called us to. May we do it in such a way that in it we worship you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.